We're sponsored by the American College of Physicians. In celebration of National Internal Medicine Day this October 28th, spread your love for internal medicine on social media, tag at ACP Internist, and use the hashtag National Internal Medicine Day. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Make sure you take a minute to really kind of work yourself up, too, because that's my favorite part. I'm, I'm working it up. Paul, right. I'm working it up. Actually, Claire, just started right here. All right, Paul, we're back. <laughs> this is the Curbsiders. I don't know how to start the show. It's been more than 300 now, Paul. Uh, some of them aren't numbered. Audience, look it up. We've got more than 300, and uh, I don't know how to start the show. Tonight, we have a fantastic guest, Dr. David Goldfarb, and we're going to be talking about kidney stones. Uh, we also have a fantastic additional co-host who we'll introduce in a second. But first, Paul, would you tell the audience, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. What an expert interview we have for you today. Before we get into his impressive biography, we should also pause to introduce our third co-host, as promised. So with us is the great Beth Garb Garbatelli. Garbs, how are you? Doing well. And Garbs, will you be going into nephrology? Because I believe Dr. Goldfarb was really trying to give you a hard sell on <laughs> nephrology as a career. TBD. TBD. Okay. Well, that think feels about like a yes. It. I feel like that's actually a fairly <laughs> hard a yes. yes, actually. And then now there's a social pressure of everyone hearing that. So, I was going to say, uh, I feel like every time I've been on with you guys, I'm like going into neurology, nephrology. I mean, like I've just been kind of going, I'm going into everything. We just want the best. We just want the best for you. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, can you tell us about the guest? <laughs> yes, uh, let's talk about our guest. Uh, tonight we have with us uh, Dr. David S. Goldfarb, MD, FASN, FNKF, FACP. He is a professor of medicine and physiology at NYU Langone Health. He is the clinical chief of nephrology and the director of the Kidney Stone Prevention Program, also the chief of the nephrology section at the New York VA Healthcare System and the medical director of the hemodialysis at the New York VA. Dr. Goldfarb is the former president of the New York Society of Nephrology and of the Rock Society. That would be Research on Calculus Kinetics. Awesome name. And then the, my favorite part of the biography right here, Dr. Goldfarb was chosen as the Stone Crusher of the Year by the Oxalosis and Hyperoxaluria Foundation. That's OHF in 2014, as well as the Nephrologist of the Year by the American Kidney Fund in 2016. Currently, he is a member of the Medical Advisory Board of the NKF of Greater New York, the OHF, and the International Cystinuria Foundation. He is was an associate editor of CJASN and is currently on the editorial boards of CJASN, JASN, KI, and Urolithiasis. That is a lot of letters. Uh, importantly, and we get into it, Dr. Goldfarb's past medical history is significant for having had three calcium oxalate stones. So as he mentions, he is not only a stone preventer, he's also a stone former. So without further ado, let's get to the episode. I feel like there probably could be a pun for this one, but I'm so not many. even going to attempt it. Don't strain yourself. <laughs> oh, Paul. Oh, my gosh. Right there. Wow. Yeah, I always had them. I just keep them to myself. <laughs> <laughs> the truth comes out. A reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME and mock credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Also, we wanted to let you know that our guest on this episode, Dr. Goldfarb, did disclose that he is a co-founder of Moonstone, which makes nutritional supplements and drink mixes for kidney health and hydration. The discussion on this episode was fair and balanced. We discussed a general range of therapeutic options and did not recommend any specific brand names. Dave, our first question for all our guests is, can you give the audience a one-liner and please throw in some sort of hobby or interest outside of medicine? Thank you, uh, Matt, uh, Paul, Beth. I appreciate you having me. My one-liner, you know, my Twitter description is very simple. I'm a kidney stone former and a kidney stone preventer. Which came first? <laughs> <laughs> I think I well, I'm the sorry. <laughs> yeah. 
That's that's the right question, actually. The you know, chicken my wife, or the stone? Yeah, I had a kidney stone. I became a kidney stone doctor, and that's proof my wife says that I'm a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry about the kidney stone. I really that's the, I think maybe the main motivation for ourselves and the audience listening to this is if we we just want to do everything we can to prevent them for ourselves and our patients, and that's I think that's the big thing that we would like to get out of this. But uh, before we get to that. Paul, did you want to ask him anything? I'll, I'll ask my standard question, uh, Dave. I'm always in the market for book recommendations. I can't promise I'll actually read them, but I always like to hear what people recommend. And then one of these days, I, I might actually get around to reading one of them. So any any book recommendations? Doesn't have to be medical. Anything you enjoyed recently? Oh, sure. I mean, of course, this makes me think, Paul, have you read From Fish to Philosopher by Homer Smith? I have not. No. So, you know, Homer Smith was the chair of physiology at NYU for a million years. He wrote The Kidney, which is was consi- he's considered the father of, of, of kidney physiology in, in the United States, if not the world. And From Fish to Philosopher is a book that, you know, although it's 60 years later, it reads amazing as the history of the evolution of the kidney, you know, and it's, it's great. And From Fish to Philosophers is the idea, you know, Joel Topp, kidney boy, um, he's got a quote from uh, Homer Smith on his uh, Twitter and his webpage. So that is a great book. And it's one that I say uh, every resident and uh, nephrology fellow has to read before they finish their training. That's a great recommendation. I may actually read that one. Thank you. Beth, did you want to ask anything? Sure. Um, we like to ask, you know, if you have any advice for learners, but I'm going to make this even more specific. What advice do you have for folks that are starting out their intern year or people like me who will be starting their intern year soon next year, what advice do you have um, related to nephrology um, and sort of managing patients that have kidneys? Everyone. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting because, you know, I, I do run the nephrology course at NYU for the first year medical students and it changes every year. You know, people learn in different ways. So it's always very difficult for the old guys like me to try to relate to people who are learning in different ways. Of course, we've seen that change in so many different ways. But I'll say this, people worry all the time about reading. How do I read enough? And I always say, just read about the patients you see, and you will never forget that. Yeah, I think that's solid advice. Yeah. It's it's one of those like almost micro goals too, because if people think like, oh, I need to read 30 minutes or an hour a day, even if they read the summary on whatever their favorite book is or something on the patient that they're seeing, you know, they'll still learn and they'll remember, or maybe they'll end up reading more than just the summary if they get into it. Yeah. I, I actually got an email this today and I then had a phone call with a guy who was my sub intern 18 years ago. And he said, whatever happened to this patient? This, <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? But he remembered what I had told him about that case. And it was, it was fantastic. It was amazing. The narrative helps it stick. That's how our brains work. We, yeah, we like to know right. stories and we're, that's how evolution trained us. Very true. Well, I think there's stakes too, right? Like it's, it's not, you're not knowing it just because you, to know it, which has its own stakes, but like there's actually a human being sort of connected to it that actually the outcomes kind of matter to that. So that he, you know. he said, I said, what did you remember about what I said to you? He said, you said, why are you giving this guy normal sailing? <laughs> 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 Some things never change, right? Can I ask you, uh, before we get on to the main topic, you've done some really great things in your career. Do you have any advice for folks who are less accomplished, which is probably most people listening to this? Uh, no offense to our listeners, but uh, what, what <laughs> advice do you have to some people that are listening? Let me tell you something. Um, I, I disagree. All of us are accomplished, right? We became doctors. We take care of people under the most difficult circumstances. We know what's happened in the last two years. And I think we're all accomplished. And you really have to take some, you know, you have to really feel at the end of the day that you did something worthwhile. Medicine is hard. We study hard. We work hard. And um, all of us are accomplished. You know, I, I don't actually ever see myself as more accomplished than you know, the, the average uh, MD. My fellows from around the world worked like crazy to get to the place where they are today to be, you know, in training. They spoke three different languages and I, I don't. They worked like crazy and they're ambitious and eager and they're enthusiastic. They love their patients and they want to learn and we're all accomplished. You you mentioning this about your fellows, uh, Paul Paul has says that, he says that to me every time that it's interview season. He goes, I I never would have made it now. Like it, it's just like yeah, the there's chance. this ratchet of the resumes. Like Seth Godin talks about this, how everything just keeps getting like more and more accomplished, and it's it's so much harder yeah. to get uh, into medical school and all the next levels. 
Right. Yeah. Our sponsor is the American College of Physicians. Join ACP in celebrating National Internal Medicine Day this October 28th. Let the world know how proud you are to be an internist. I know I'm proud to be an internist because, let's face it, we're awesome. We take care of the whole body. Sure, we don't do surgery, but hey, we think a lot. We are great. ACP provides lots of fun ways to express your internal medicine pride. Visit acponline.org nimd21 to download posters and shareable posts for social media. You can update your social media profile picture to include a National Internal Medicine Day frame and customize or create your own social posts and share posts from ACP and other internists. To get the word out there that we're internists and we're awesome and we need more internists. So flood the internet with Internal Medicine Pride this October 28th. We recommend you recognize a colleague and spread the love for internal medicine. Be sure to tag at ACP Internists and use the hashtag National Internal Medicine Day. Visit acponline.org forward slash NIMD21 to start celebrating. That's acponline.org forward slash NIMD21. Should we move on to a case? Sure. So we're going to start with a, a case and a great name that was designed personally by Dr. Paul Williams. Mr. Yuri T. Stone, a 62-year-old gentleman. He's got a past medical history significant for obesity with a BMI of 36. Type 2 diabetes, last hemoglobin A1C was 8.2%. He's on metformin and glipizide. He has hypertension managed with lisinopril and gout. And he's presenting to your outpatient primary care office for an urgent visit for right-sided flank pain that began last night and woke him from sleep. The pain's been hitting him in waves, and it's not been alleviated by ibuprofen. The pain is characterized as dull, dragging, starts on the right side, and is radiating anteriorly to the abdomen. He's denying fevers and chills, although he feels somewhat nauseous. He has not had any vomiting. He denies gross hematuria. He works as a truck driver, and he's wondering if the bouncing around in the truck may have hurt his kidneys. You are concerned for urinary stone disease. So we always like to start with the basics. What features of this history are, are suggestive to you for urinary stone disease? Yeah, great. Well, there's a pretest probability here that since I'm a kidney stone doctor, <laughs> um, this guy is going to have a kidney stone. But of course, you know, this is a pretty typical presentation and there's nothing atypical about it. But let me just say that I have been fooled by so many things, right? I've certainly thought that patients had peritonitis and they had kidney stones. And there are people who have had kidney stones, and I thought they had a kidney stone and they had peritonitis. So, you know, some of the things that would normally distinguish between these are not necessarily clear cut. The best story is if the patient comes in and says, I've had a kidney stone before, and this is another kidney stone, right? Then it's easy. And listen to the patient, um, as we always say, because usually the patient knows exactly what the, what the problem is. You know, in this case, some of the risk factors, people with gout have more kidney stones, and not necessarily uric acid. Diabetics have more kidney stones. Overweight people have more kidney stones. And we've written a paper uh, that I think sort of highlights the occupational kidney stones, possibility that people on long truck drives don't have access to water or don't have access to bathrooms and drivers of the like of bus drivers and cab drivers may have more kidney stones. Although there's not a lot of evidence that that's true, but we've, we've written up a bunch of reasons why that would be the case. I even read in an article that there's a stone belt, you know, there's like this idea that the warmer temperatures makes people more prone to have stones. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's very well documented. So I think the evidence is uh, pretty clear on that. The South has more kidney stones and there were thoughts that it was related to more vitamin D. I think that's not the case. Uh, genetics, I don't think that's the case. Um, there's clearly a temperature relationship. We've written a couple of papers. My friend uh, Greg Tazian is a pediatric urologist in, uh, at CHOP in Philadelphia. And Greg's written a bunch of great papers that I'm a co-author on, on demonstrations of heat and the relationship of kidney stones to uh, warmer temperatures. It's a seasonal disorder. So there's, there's no question that that's part of the problem. Oh, interesting. I don't want to take us on too much of a detour here, but are we, because I know we're going to talk about prevention eventually, but is it, is the thought that it's, it's just purely increase extra renal losses of water and because, you know, water intake is such an important thing and, and it's just not being replaced enough in these warm climates? Yeah. 
Exactly, Matt. It, it, the issue is just losing water through your skin and through instead of in your urine. So all the salts that all of us have uh, in the urine that are poorly soluble um, become more concentrated. In other words, supersaturation increases, and kidney stones are more common. Wow. Okay. Well, and 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 then it's a prone. You have to be in the prone population as well. Like, hopefully, not every everybody that gets dehydrated is going to be have this happen to them. But you, I guess, you don't know. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, you know, we've we've done a couple of twin studies uh, showing that there's a genetic uh, contribution of kidney stones uh, to kidney stones, but the genetics of that are not completely clear. So you're right that not everybody is prone. But on the other hand, we like to say that if 11 to 12 percent of American men and seven or eight percent of American women will have at least one kidney stone in their lifetime, then there's a pretty high prevalence of susceptibility, yeah. right? Maybe that's our diet. Um, and our failure to drink enough water. Um, but it, it is a highly prevalent disease, of course. And it seems to be increasing in women. I mean, it's increasing across the board, I think. But I think in one of the articles I also read, there was this, you know, it's gone up a lot more in women than would be expected. Yeah. Beth, um, 20 years ago, we said that uh, this was a man, uh, men to women, two to one uh, disorder. And now that number in the latest NHANES data is 1.3. So somehow women are closing the gap. That's not a gap we want to close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. Agreed. Good, good. I, I agree, Beth. Uh, let's let's get back to the, you, you mentioned the differential diagnosis a little bit. You said that you've been fooled, peritonitis and kidney stones. Is there anything else that you have on the differential and when you're thinking about the history that you ask about or that you think about as you're trying to narrow it down? Yeah, I, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the abdomen, Matt, and uh, you could really think about, I've thought about diverticulitis in women. Um, some women have, I've had patients who had both kidney stones and a history of uh, ovarian cysts. You know, th those are, uh, these are infrequent. Um, and most of us would say the worst pain in your life with that stabbing in the back. Um, I've experienced it myself. That's how I, that's how I got here uh, today. And, and so that's pretty classic, but you know, the truth is that when I had the big stone that turned me into a kidney stone doctor, I said to my wife, who's a, an infectious disease specialist, I said, I think I have appendicitis. And she said, you're having a kidney stone, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, infectious diseases doctors are usually pretty smart. So I tend to listen they're, to them when they tell me something. They're good diagnosticians. That's right. Yeah. So I noticed uh, you wrote the In the Clinic article, uh, I think it was in 2019, in the annals about this. Oh, 2009. Was it? I'm older. Oh, it was, I'm older oh okay. I thought, it was, yeah. I thought it was more recent than that. I, I, no, okay. Yeah. But I, I think this part of it will probably still hold true, that the location of the stone may cause different levels of pain in the person, like if it's a, if it's a UPJ stone. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that something that we should put stock in? I guess clinically, does it matter? Yeah, I think I think there's some truth to that. Um, you know, it, it's my friend Brian Eisner uh, at, uh, Mass, uh, at uh, Mass General has written a paper that that says it may not be hard and fast, um, but the pain starts in the back as it as the stones is at the UPJ. It goes down the ureter. The pain starts radiating anteriorly as it gets to the UVJ, the ureteral vesical junction. Uh, the pain is more often radiating anteriorly and into the genitals. It's a very classic uh, story. So that's the kind of radiation that occurs as the stone goes down. Uh, and, I, and I think there's some validity to that. You've alluded to this a little bit. Can I ask a little bit about the range of symptomatology? I, so a lot of the papers written about this are almost always directed towards ER doctors or surgeons to some extent, whereas yeah. I work in a primary care office and the patient will come in with flank pain, but they're sitting there, they look perfectly comfortable. They're like, yeah, my side hurts sometimes and, and maybe it hurts my pain. You're just like, ugh. Like how, I guess, what is the range of... And I know this is a fairly broad question of, of symptomatology for someone who's suffering from a urinary stone. No, um, you know, as a matter of fact, um, so a part of my my day is getting emails. And even though I'm not a urologist, my patients who have kidney stones, particularly frequent stones like cystinuria, where that you know they really have frequent stones and uh, frequently will tell me, "I think I'm having a kidney stone." Do you want to go to the ear? No, of course not. Um, those are patients who are not seeking a dose of morphine. They would much rather stay out of the emergency room and avoid the uh, the whole triage thing, right? So I completely agree. I have heard every kind of story um, from relatively mild to extremely severe. Um, and, you know, I myself, uh, you know, <laughs> demanded uh, 150 milligrams of Demerol on one occasion in my life. 
Um, but it's, it's everything. Um, and so I do think that um, the patient's history, once you've had one, you're going to have another and you'll know it. Um, and I, I appreciate the fact that the symptomatology is not as classic as everyone thinks. Well, for this, for this patient, um, I believe his name is Mr. Yuri T. Stone. Uh, thank you for that, Paul. We don't have to keep saying it. It's fine. We know <laughs> yeah. what we're talking about. <laughs> That's part what, of the pretest, probably. You know, based well. on this yeah. gentleman we talked about, he's got a lot of the metabolic risk factors. He also has a history of gout. Is there any specific? And he's a, he's a, a truck driver long, on long hauls. Any specific type of stone that you might bet this guy has, or can, can, is there no way to tell until you actually get get some urine sample or get a stone sample? Right. I, I th- the, the right test, uh, Matt, is definitely the uh, get the kidney stone and send it to the lab, right? And just on a statistical basis, this is a calcium oxalate stone. You know, the likelihood that at this uh, time in his life that he's presenting with cystinuria is very low. But, I, you know, I think that this is probably a calcium oxalate stone. You know, if you ask about uric acid stones, that's certainly possible. People who are overweight and diabetic have a lower urine pH. And when the urine pH is low, and repeatedly so, uric acid will precipitate. So there certainly is a possibility that this is a uric acid stone. And so if we're going to get a CAT scan, one of the things to make sure we ask the radiologist is what are the Hounsfield units on the uh, on that kidney stone if you see it, right? Because low numbers on the Hounsfield units, less density is a uh, most likely a uric acid stone and higher numbers are more likely to be calcium stones. So that's that's a good thing worth doing. And the last couple of weeks, I've been showing the nephrology fellows, uh, the new nephrology fellows, how to measure the HUs themselves on packs, you know, basically looking at the stone and uh, measuring the density. It's, it's a useful number to, uh, to have. So this could be most likely a calcium oxalate stone, but there are reasons to think that uh, this guy's at risk for uric acid stones as well. Okay. And the struvite stones are going to present more as an infected stone, right? Is that fair to to see that as someone who's going to be more, you know, feverish and having more of a sick presentation? Yeah, um, not necessarily though, Beth, because um, this is not like urosepsis, right? People with 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 uh, struvite stones have stones that have been there for weeks to months, mm. maybe even years, right? And so they are not necessarily so acutely ill. The big thing that uh, would tell you that would be a high urine pH, which is consistent with uh, the organisms that are typically, you know, proteus is the classic. It makes urease, uh, an enzyme that splits urea. You wind up with a lot of ammonia in the urine. Ammonia is a strong base. Therefore, it, it uh, titrates protons and the urine pH goes up. So if the pH were 8.5, you never see that with any physiologic condition. That's a urinary tract infection associated with struvite stones. There are more, actually, women get more uh, urinary tract infections. So women have more struvite stones. But, you know, at the New York VA, I've seen a number of struvite stones. So it's certainly a possibility, but it's not such an acute UTI kind of presentation. And so, no, that isn't necessarily what you expect of that from that patient. Dave, is the, is the pH cutoff six, less than six is low, above six is high? Do you, do you have a number that you go by? Um, yeah, you know, if um, the, really what we're looking for is if you have uh, lots of pH readings, and that's, of course, not usually the case. Um, it's that people, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you might be at 5 or 5.5. After eating, your pH will tend to go up. And maybe at the end of the day, you're 6.5. Um, so there's normal variation. The people with uric acid stones are always 5 or 5.5. They're always low. And the people with RTA are always high, 6.5. And the people with struvite stones are always really high, 8 or more. Um, so that's kind of a lack of uh, variation is part of what you'd expect uh, with those different kinds of stones. Yeah. I just, I never pay attention to the urine pH because to be quite honest, like until you just taught me that I, I wouldn't have known what to do with it, <laughs> but yeah. e- email me this, this seems okay. useful. Yeah. I, we, we really yeah. need this. Uh, well, Paul, Good. anything else uh, for, for Mr. Stone, Paul, anything else that we, we want to go or uh, talk about yet, or are we going to give more of the case now? Let's, let's hear more about him. Okay. So let's, let's, Talk about how he's doing. So you're, you see Mr. Stone, I, I hate myself so much right now, um, in the exam room. He looks reasonably comfortable. He's not really having any pain at the moment. Vital signs are relatively reassuring. He's afebrile. His blood pressure is 142 over 92. His heart rate's 86. His respiratory rate's 16. He's not having any guarding or rebound tenderness, so we don't have to worry about appendicitis for him, hopefully, um, and has normal active bowel sounds. 
He does have mild right-sided CVA tenderness, so just a little bit of a jump when you tap him on the back. We do have the capacity to do a point-of-carrier analysis. He's got two-plus red blood cells, and his urine is positive for leukocyte esterase. The pH, auto, is six. So now that we have this information, is there anything on the physical examination that, that now makes us feel even more slam dunk? Is there anything particularly helpful here in terms of the exam? I think that the physical exam is not going to be very helpful. Of course, if he has rebound tenderness, that may be different. But look, most of us are going to get a CAT scan on this guy, right? I mean, and the possibility of avoiding that is certainly admirable. Particularly, I can tell you that the people who are most motivated to avoid the CAT scan are the people who have had previous kidney stones and know what it is. And when they say to the ER doctor, I'm having a kidney stone, I don't need a CT scan. I just need um, a little bit of morphine. I personally am comfortable with that, right? It's, I'm not offended. I'm not uh, appalled that they are trying to uh, demonstrate uh, greater knowledge than me. Um, I'm okay with that. You know, I think that's an appropriate impulse to avoid the CT scan and say, here, I know what the diagnosis is. And it happens to me every single day. And I mean, personally, I mean, my <laughs> patients have that experience. So I wanted to get into this a little bit just because in terms of the role of imaging and making the diagnosis. So you have this patient, yeah. his name's Mr. Stone. He's coming to you, a urinary stone <laughs> expert, and he has all the classic hallmarks. Yeah. In terms of the role of the CT scan, and I guess my question is, what is the role of the CT scan? Is it making the diagnosis? Is it actually ruling out hydronephrosis? Like what are you, how important yeah. is it? Because I know on the outpatient side, oftentimes it's hard to get that done in any kind of, without just sending him off to the ER. Yeah. Um, I, I totally agree with it, with, with you. Um, you know, I have a regimen for passing stones. That's a slightly different uh, subject than what you're asking me about, Paul. But um, I would often recommend to the patient who I know has a kidney stone, here's what I think you should do. And I'll tell you what that is in a little bit. But in the meantime, for the person who's never had a stone diagnosed, I think doing a CAT scan is a reasonable thing to do, right? I think most of us in major medical centers, and obviously that's not that doesn't apply to everyone, but we have the access to low-dose non-contrast CT. So not much radiation, find that kidney stone. And for me, this is a pretty, you know, the, the price of the, of, the, of the test keeps going down. The time that it takes keeps going down. Um, when I had my first kidney stone as a resident at NYU, it took hours and I was, I had an IVP, not a CT scan. It took hours to do that test. Oh, wow. um, right. And it was a big deal. And so that is completely changed. Now, helical CT, 10 minutes and you're done. No contrast, much less radiation than ever before. So, you know, it's, it's, it's simple to order that. Of course, not everybody has access to that in various settings. And you're right, as an outpatient, it's harder, even for me, um, to schedule that on occasion, you know. So, but for if in the emergency room, I think getting a CT scan for somebody who's never had that diagnosis before is a pretty clear thing to do. And that's certainly what the urologists think. You know, there's a, the Smith-Binman paper that was in the New England Journal four or five years ago, or maybe maybe it's more five to six. That paper suggested that getting an ultrasound was a reasonable test. And I don't object to that. I, I certainly think that ultrasound can see the hydronephrosis. It may not see stones in the pelvis right down in the uh, near the bladder, near the UVJ. So the ultrasound can show hydro. And in that case, you have a pretty good idea what the diagnosis is too. But the, the urologists object to that study and say, very often, the study is going to be negative and you're going to have missed important stones and you're going to wind up doing the CT scan anyway. So I have a very low threshold for ordering a CT scan. But as I said, because I take care of so many patients who are known stone formers, I'm very happy not to do anything, not an ultrasound, not a CT scan, but basically say, okay, here's my advice for passing the stone. And if it doesn't go away and you don't pass it quickly, then keep in touch and we'll get the imaging study. Is the standard uh, stone protocol CT nowadays, is, is it mostly the low dose? Because I know that's the issue, right? These patients, if they have recurrent stones, they're going to get so many CAT scans in their, in their life. Yeah, Matt, it's, it's oh, okay. not, right? I mean, you know, at a place like Jefferson, um, where Dr. Bagley is a, a kidney stone uh, master of the universe, <laughs> um, it's likely that that is possible, right? But there are many places you can't even, it's, it's really surprising that low dose CT is not the standard, right? And and you sort of, I think we all need to keep some pressure on the radiologist to think that this is important. So it's certainly something that I talk to my radiologist about when I have the opportunity. You see it mentioned in a lot of the articles in terms of getting plain film imaging just to maybe pick up a calcium stone. Is there any circumstance where that would be something that you would actually send a patient for, or is that mostly theoretical? Yeah. You know, as a matter of fact, that's that's a great question because, you know, KUB is, is, is not a bad test. If you see a, a stone, 
you know, you certainly have made the diagnosis. So again, very low radiation, inexpensive, easy to get, and, and certainly in a calcium stone form where it's appropriate. Remember that uric acid stones won't show up on plain x-rays, right? And particularly for, um, I, know, I know urologists and nephrologists who like to get KUBs because there's a stone that's been seen before. Let's see if that stone has gotten bigger since you did it uh, a year ago, or have, do you have new stones? But you, you just have to remember that the problem with the KUB is that stool and gas will obscure even calcium stones, you know, that are smaller. So it's not a perfect study. So, Paul, uh, is there more to the case? Is, is Mr. Stone, what's going to happen to this guy? Well, before we get there, I, I think I had a couple more questions in terms of just sort of working the gentleman up. Have you, I, mm-hmm. I saw the stone score referenced in a couple of papers. Is that something else that is recommended to use with any kind of regularity? Is that, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a kind of a urology idea about maybe you could avoid season. I'm not saying anything disparaging <laughs> about, about urologist no, Paul, okay? But it is a, um, it's a score that's intended to uh, see what's the likelihood of this being a ureteral stone. And, you know, I think it has some validity, but it isn't a, it's not like a kidney biopsy, let's say, you know, it's not, it isn't um, a perfect study. It's got sensitivity and specificity. And, and so I, I think it's an interesting uh, point of view, but ultimately um, I think most urologists are going to say, let's get a CAT scan. And then the follow-up question I had is, you know, we're going to be sending this gentleman for imaging um, to make our establishing diagnosis. We'll say we're, we're friends with the, the radiology department. But while we're waiting that to, to get set up, is there any other lab work that you would do, any any other studies that you would order at this initial uh, presentation where you have high suspicion for stone disease? Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, you know what I want, Paul. I want a basic metabolic. <laughs> what is the creatinine? <laughs> That's it. I want a set of electrolytes, man, and sure. a calcium. That's basically it, right? Um, it's pretty simple. Um, I want that uh, skeleton key. It, it's pretty simple, right? You want to know what's this patient's kidney function. You want to know what the electrolytes are. What's the bicarb? Because the patient could have RTA. What's the calcium? Because the patient could have sarcoidosis or primary hyperparathyroidism. So it's a pretty simple set of tests, right? And, and I do, of course, want a urinalysis. But it, it's important to recognize that many patients with kidney stones do not have hematuria. So hematuria is, I think, you know, suggestive and confirmatory, but None of these tests are going to be diagnostic. The gold standard is the CT scan. Let's let's move on to the imaging. We we pour on the charm, we sweet talk about our eyelashes, and we manage to get an expedited non-con CT of the abdomen and pelvis that same day um, without a hitch. And this shows a six millimeter right-sided proximal ureteral stone, no evidence of hydronephrosis or pyelonephritis. So we've we've made the diagnosis, we feel good about it. So now we're, I think, hopefully in management land. So for this patient with what sounds like an initial diagnosis of urinary stone disease, where where do we go from here? How do we counsel our patient and, and what do we do with them? Yeah, this is really important because you're, you're kind of in a gray zone here. You know, my uh, the numbers, I'll, I'll give you some numbers. Five millimeters is 50-50. 50% of those stones will pass and 50% of them are going to require a urologist's uh, aid. Seven millimeters is like 20% is going to pass. So at six, you know, we're, this is a stone that is less likely than not to pass. So we're kind of in the middle. The other thing that concerned me a little bit was the leukesterase on the urinalysis, right? I mean, although you're telling me that the CT is not being read as pyelonephritis, right? I, I do want to make sure we get a urine culture here, of course, and consider antibiotics. And, you know, when, when we talk about does everybody in the emergency room with a, with a kidney stone need a urologist? This is a close call, right? Because there's not anything worse than an obstructed urinary tract that's also infected, right? That's really an emergency. That's a risk of urosepsis and the like. So the urinalysis bothered me a little bit by the, the, the leukesterase, right? And, you know, he's not febrile. He doesn't have a white count. Those are important uh, considerations. And maybe you'd be able to send this guy home. So the point here now for me as a non-urologist, right? What, what do I do? Here's my advice. Two naproxens. Naproxen is a longer-acting non-steroidal. Get a little pain relief, better than opiates. Some anti-inflammatory effect, which might help pass stones. There's actually old literature suggesting that non-steroidals will facilitate stone passage. I usually recommend getting into a warm bath. I believe that stone passage is about relaxation, not so much pain relief. Warm bath, turn down the lights, light a candle, and then take <laughs> your, your drug of choice, Maybe that's beer. Maybe it's a benzo. And then for younger people, I have a different list of possible relaxing <laughs> substances, which I'm not going to talk about today. Um, 
But the possibility of relaxation as an important part of stone passage, you sort of imagine that if a patient relaxes, maybe their ureterovesical junction relaxes as well. So, you know, there's not a lot of literature on this topic. Alpha blockers have not been so successful. And currently, they're really out of vogue in Europe, where the Picard study uh, was in the Lancet and suggested that uh, alpha blockers had no benefit. American urologists are still using alpha blockers because they're inexpensive and they're safe. You know, they're relatively well tolerated. So, you know, many of my patients have some Flomax in their in their medicine cabinet. I don't mind that, but I like the idea of longer acting non-steroidals round the clock, regardless of whether you're getting pain relief from it because it may help, and then relaxation of some sort. You know, because people are under such stress. I wanted to ask you. I, I think we covered this, Paul, like six years ago. Like in the uh, there Are you was ask about roller coasters. No, not the roller coaster. Oh, oh that's gosh. another one. Don't don't there, ask me. Don't ask me that. Uh, there was. I think this was 2015. <laughs> and it was in a urology journal, and it was for. I think it was from somewhere in the Middle East. They were talking about sex intercourse to pass urinary stones. It sounded like a fun way yeah. to pass yes. a stone. So I'm just asking. Well, yeah. You know, as a matter of fact, um, if you, if you Google me and roller coasters, Paul, you'll find you'll find that I'll say actually sexual intercourse appears to be more effective than roller coasters. Nice. Right? Um, that's that's exactly correct. Depending so, on what you're trying to accomplish, sure. Yeah, but we're not talking about science now. We're talking about entertainment. <laughs> okay, audience. Well, if you feel up well, to it, can okay. it couldn't hurt. Back to the evidence, there is the Cochrane reviews that shows the NSAIDs are, you know, equally effective yeah. with less side effects. So I like that there is it's, a lot of evidence for that. That's correct. But Beth, actually what you're talking about, yes, you're exactly correct, but that's about pain relief, mm. right? Um, what's, what isn't as well studied is for stone passage. Mm. Um, so that's a, that's a slightly different topic, but you're, you're right. From the point of view of pain relief, um, non-steroidals are clearly better than, uh, than uh, opiates, right? So I think that's really important. Everybody know that. So, Paul, is Mr. Stone going to go home, take a bath, pop two naproxen, and uh, light a candle, have some substance yeah. to help him relax, maybe a beer, and uh, and see what happens? Or is this guy getting admitted? What what happens next with for him? Well, I, I think we're sending him home, actually, because we're, we're feeling brave and bold, and he's not looking toxic. So... With the patient going home and, and looking non-toxic, I guess, is there, other than sort of the, the relaxation counseling that we talked to about in depth, how should we counsel them in terms of things like, oh, I don't know, like hydration or even sort of straining the stone? Are there any practical tips like when you're when you're advising a patient how they actually cast the thing? Um, what yeah. do you tell them to do? Um, yeah. Uh, thank you for reminding me about hydration because that's never going to work, right? If you think about it, if you have an obstructed kidney or even a partially uh, obstructed kidney, that kidney has a lower GFR. So if you drink a liter of water, most of that liter is going to the contralateral kidney, right? Not the one that's affected. So um, there's one decent randomized trial done at Duke uh, that showed that giving two liters of normal saline as compared to nothing was not effective in lowering pain scores or causing stone passage. So drinking more is not appropriate, you know, unless the patient has nausea and vomiting. That's a different story. It's not going to help pass the stone. So I, I really lay off on that whole uh, fluid administration thing. I like the idea of, of passing, uh, excuse me, of screening uh, the urine and trying to catch a stone. It's certainly uh, useful if you get it to be able to analyze it, of course, and know what the composition is, which really may affect uh, therapy. And, you know, the other thing that is often forgotten about is just to re-image the patient, you know, at the point where you know now that this guy has a six millimeter stone on a CT scan. Getting an ultrasound would be a very reasonable thing to do. You know, ultrasound should be good at finding that proximal UPJ stone. And very often patients haven't been, haven't been re-imaged and yet they're not sure if they pass the stone or not. Um, they feel better, they're comfortable, but nobody's quite sure. And I think it's important to know that. You also want to have, at least on that initial imaging study, you want to know if there are other stones present because that's going to also affect the patient's thoughts about what else is going on and what to do about this and how motivated they'll be to try to prevent stones in the future. Yeah. Usually before the patient goes anywhere, they want to know what can I eat and drink and you know, what can I do to make sure this never happens again? It's, yeah. I think it's really useful. I, w I would not have thought about the hydration thing because that's, you know, I know that's such a big part of secondary prevention after they've passed the stone, after that, that event has gone. But that's, that's right. counterintuitive. So I, I think that's really important uh, to point that out. So basically you tell them drink to thirst, you know, drink to, enough to quench their thirst. And uh, if they're nauseous and vomiting, try to replace enough, you know, but otherwise they don't have to push it. Correct. 
Can I ask, and apologies for this being such a prosaic question, but how, how do you tell patients to strain their urine? Like, are they peeing through four by fours into <laughs> to cups? Are they yeah. actually, are they buying strainers? Like what, what advice do you give them to actually, if, if we're trying to have them catch a stone, how, what does that look like when you're counseling them? Yeah. Four by four is a, a perfect thing. You can give them a stack of four by fours and, and tell them to use it that way. Or, you know, you can pee through toilet paper, you know, and people catch them all the time. You know, uh, you know, I, I can tell you so many stories about people who then said, oh, it wound up in the toilet and they didn't want to reach in there and get it. What? <laughs> of course you should. You have to reach in there and get it. <laughs> I once I once dropped one of my stones, a small stone. I dropped it in the sink, just like any anybody, any other patient would, you know. Um, and I wound up taking apart the sink to retrieve it. Am I, am I, like a, like a <laughs> ring or something. I, right. And I put a, I put tape up like it was a crime scene, you know, <laughs> and my, and my son came into the bathroom and said, dad, what are you doing? Why is this kidney stone so important? I said, it's very hard to explain. It to you. <laughs> is it, but do you it. have them on display somewhere is like, yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. All right. I, I probably would do the same. I have to admit. Sure. Um, so now, Paul, I'm totally lost. Where were we? I, I can't remember. <laughs> hey, audience, we're sponsored today by Indeed. Have you ever looked at or thought about your company's hiring practices and just said, there has to be a better way to do this? Well, Indeed is innovating, recruiting by letting you pay for only quality candidates that meet your must-have requirements. Hiring can be hard, but with Indeed, it's a job site that makes it incredibly simple. You just attract, interview, and hire. And with Indeed, you can do all this hiring in one place, even the interviews. So don't just hope that your perfect candidate is going to find you. Use Indeed's hiring tools to cut through all the noise. You can hire faster and smarter. And with Indeed Instant Match, you get a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. With Indeed assessments, choose from 135 skill sets that are going to help you narrow down and find the applications from people with the skills that you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. Join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to update your job post at indeed.com slash internal medicine. Get a $75 credit at indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. What What's next for this? Uh, are we, is Mr. Stone out of the woods yet? What's happening next with him? So let's let's get let's get him out of the woods. I do actually want to hear about, and I know this is sort of outside the, the scope of this conversation, maybe a little bit, but just touch on sort of the urologic options for larger stones. It's probably we should probably mention those because I think yeah. it's uh, obligated by law. But but we can have Mister Stone pass the stone. He, he thinks it happened. He was on the road um, out driving and then right. in the restroom at a let's say a truck stop and just was not straining his urine, but felt yeah. almost immediate palpable relief. Is pretty sure that he passed the stone. Um, so that's so just to to make Wado happy, the patient's doing better for right now. Okay, good. <laughs> So let's do the larger stone question first. So if you would mind just yeah. sort of briefly talking about what, what the, our fancy pants colleagues in urology would do for sort of larger stones and, and what's indicated, if you don't mind touching on that before we move on about preventing recurrence. Right. So the way that's going um, is that ureteroscopy, laser lithotripsy, if you like, in other words, going from below up the ureter with a laser to get the stone is becoming extremely more common and has pretty much passed shockwave lithotripsy extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy or S-wall in terms of its uh, prevalence. And so S-wall is much less frequent. Uh, ureteroscopy is much more frequent and they've pretty much passed each other. And so, and I, and I favor that, you know, I did personally have a, an S-wall back in the day um, and it went great for a seven millimeter proximal stone, a little bit like uh, Mr. Stone here, right? It worked great, but here's a couple of things. One, when you, you do a lithotripsy, they're only going to do one stone. They're not going to get others. If they do a ureteroscopy, they go up there and they get all the stones out on that same side, right? At least some urologists will do both sides at once. Like your dentist would do both the top and the bottom, right? And the right side and the left side. So that's a good thing. With the tripsy may miss, I very often say to my patients, you know, bigger stones are going to break up into many pieces and you're going to have to pass those multiple pieces. When you do ureteroscopy, you're going to get out all of those fragments as well. 
So there are a number of reasons why this has changed. It's also the case that younger urologists have trained that way. They learned how to do it. And so they're comfortable with it, you know, and really there was a few years ago, I would say, you want your urologist to have grown up with an Xbox or a Nintendo. <laughs> um, they've, they've got that kind of dexterity. They have that, you know, the reason why my kids, you know, would kick my butt in any of those video games, right? Because they have a different kind of hand-eye coordination. They're used to doing it that way. And I, I think that's part of what's happened in uh, urology training. That's my impression. Just, Those surgery sounds so metal, like lithotripsy, like lasers involved. Just, they sound very uh -huh. intense. I feel like patients get a kick right. out of it. When yeah. So when you say ureteroscopy, because it's been a very long time since I was anywhere near an OR with a urologist, um, they so they're, they're going directly into the ureter, visualizing the stone, breaking it up, and right. removing the fragments all in one shot. Okay. Correct. Right. And, they'll, and they can go to every calyx, you know, and people like Dr. Bagley at Jefferson uh, are the pioneers of being able to have the most flexible scopes, get into the, even the lower pole. Those are calyces where you have to go down. Uh, if you get into the renal pelvis, you got to go down into the lower calyces and they can get there nowadays when they couldn't do that in the past. Wow. I did not know that was a thing. Uh, that's great. Yeah. Okay. So Mr. Stone, uh, even if he had a bigger stone, he got ureteroscopy, but we, Paul, you said we sent him home. He passed it. He did okay. He didn't get in, didn't become septic from it. So, uh, what's, what's next on the agenda, Paul? So let's, let's talk about counseling. So we, in terms of management of the stone, it sounds like hydration is not, is not the right course, but in terms of what about preventing recurrence? So Mr. Stone did not enjoy his time with us, um, even though we were perfectly lovely. So what can we do to counsel him about preventing recurrence of urinary stones or, you know, and what is the likelihood that you actually have another kidney stone? It sounds like from earlier comments that you made pretty high, but can we lower those odds at all? Yeah. So um, the number that I usually cite is about 50% at uh, 10 years, 80% at 20 years, we'll have another stone. So, you know, uh, that may sound like pretty infrequent, but there are of course people who have a stone every year, frequent flyers in the OR, that sort of thing. So number one, there's an important medication. It's called water. You have to take a dose of it. It's 96 ounces. You have to think of this as a medication. I want you to think about this as a very powerful medication. It's like rituxan, you know. Um, <laughs> it, it is very effective. It's inexpensive. It has only one side effect. You have to pee more often. So, you, you know, it used to be that I used to write a prescription um, back before the electronic health record. I would write out, I'm going to write you a prescription for the really powerful stuff. And I would write water, 96 ounces. <laughs> Uh, each day. And I'd say, go down to the D'Agostino and fill this prescription. You just really want to talk to people about what this means all day long, particularly with meals, of course, because that's where the solute is. And then you have to have a little bit of empathy, uh, I would ask all of you, for the people who have prosthetic hypertrophy and people who have a little incontinence and the people who have occupational issues. That means that they don't have access to water or they don't have access to bathrooms. If you talk to a uh, cab driver about increasing their fluid intake, they will look at you like you're crazy. If you talk to a woman cab driver about her fluid intake, she will look at you like you are really, really crazy because these are serious occupational issues, you know? So we've written a paper about occupational kidney stones, and we've sort of stressed the idea that there are all kinds of people who cannot have access to bathrooms and, and water. You know, there are athletes, of course, who don't have access to much fluid. Uh, I saw a patient recently who worked on the fourth floor of a an NYU office building uh, down near the uh, main campus. The bathrooms were all on the first floor. She wouldn't drink anything. Uh, because she'd have to walk down to the first floor and then walk back up to her office. And, you know, these are sort of practical issues uh, regarding, you know, people with musculoskeletal issues and, and the like. I mean, I, there's a million stories uh, that I have collected now um, about people and the reasons why they can't increase their fluid intake. So what I'm, part of what I'm saying is that although people often say drink a lot to their patients as though that's the most obvious thing, there are many circumstances where that is not so easy. And I think part this will this question will go along with what we may talk about next. If they can't simply just increase their water intake, and um, let's say maybe we didn't catch a stone, do you ever send these big? I think they're some of them are even proprietary twenty four hour urine collections where they check all these different things. You know, the the various different labs have these twenty four hour panels, stone panels that you can send, and they'll kind of tell you. Yeah. 
you know, do we need to make alkalinize the urine? Is this a uric acid? Is this a calcium oxalate? Like they kind of give you right. clues. Do you ever use those? Quite okay. a lot, right? And and but partly, um, Matt, remember that as a you know as a tertiary kidney stone kind of doctor, my referral base is a little bit different than the average internist might have. You know, my patients have more recurrent stones and bigger stones, and I have a population of patients with cystinuria and primary hyperoxaluria and some other unusual stuff. But I will point out that we're currently, um, my collaborators, including Ryan C. at uh, Vanderbilt and John Hollingsworth at the University of Michigan, we've written a bunch of papers about whether 24-hour urine collections are worthwhile and make a difference. And there's some uh, sort of lack of evidence, even though I will tell you that I am a frequent flyer with companies that do 24-hour urine collections. And, you know, patients like to see what's wrong with my urine. What is my problem? I changed my diet or you gave me this medication. Did it work? Did it change my urine chemistry? So there are lots of reasons why patients like to do it, although people often say patients don't want to do it. If you explain to them why it's helpful and can give them good information about why it's going to make a difference, um, patients are happy to do it, you know, particularly the people with recurrent kidney stones. So, you know, I, I wrote a paper a few years ago that's part of this discussion. It's called empiric therapy for kidney stones. And empiric means I'm going to pretty much tell everybody how to increase their fluid intake, change their diet, and prevent kidney stones. But I could do it based on a 24-hour urine collection. That's called selected therapy. That's based on what your urine looks like. I'm going to give you specific advice. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'd say I'm a little bit more ambivalent about 24-hour urine collections today than I was 10 years ago. My ideas about that are sort of changed, and we're continuing to look for the data. Uh, my friend Ryan C. is a urologist at Vanderbilt, and Ryan has been putting in grants uh, to study this in a little more thorough and uh, scientific fashion. I should get patients more credit. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say I should get patients more credit um, just because – Anytime that a 24-hour urine collection is recommended for anything, whether we're talking about FIOs or stone analysis, I'm just like, well, if that's not going to happen, what's plan B? And I, it's, so it's nice to hear that lightly backed up, but not entirely. And that was not worth interrupting Beth for. Sorry, what were going to say? Oh, no. I always like to congrat. Like, I feel like patients go through a lot and like, I'm very impressed by what patients are willing to do. So I like when we give them shout outs, but um, also related to what patients are going to be, you know, changing in their lifestyle for this. I think a lot of people have questions about diet and how to change their diet. And I looked up, you know, some of the recommendations. There's the idea of like lowering foods that have oxalate in them. And as a foodie, I was really sad because the list was delicious. It was like chocolate, berries, cranberries, beets, leafy greens, and also like really healthy. So, you know, what's your kind of general approach to counseling patients on these dietary changes that come up? Great. Uh, Beth, thank you for that. A very important question. So first, the diet that I give people is the Borgie diet, B-O-R-G-H-I. That's the New England Journal article, 2002. It's the only study that showed that a diet prevented kidney stones. And I'm going to tell you the four parts of that diet very quickly. Less sodium, because more sodium leads to more calcium in the urine. Less animal protein, because animal protein is where acid comes from. And the kidney reabsorbs citrate. Citrate's good for prevention of kidney stones. And if you eat more animal protein, you'll have less citrate in the urine. Three, less oxalate because oxalate is what most kidney stones are made out of, but I'm going to put a hesitation on that because of what your important question. Uh, and then fourth part is dairy is good. Dairy is good because that's where calcium comes from. And so part of the debate has been, if you want to lower the amount of oxalate in the urine, there's two ways of thinking about it. One, eat less oxalate. That doesn't make people happy. And Beth told us why. Or two, eat more calcium because calcium will bind oxalate in the intestinal lumen. Calcium and oxalate get together and they don't come apart. If the calcium and the oxalate meet in the intestine, then the oxalate doesn't get into the blood and doesn't get into the urine and the calcium and oxalate pass out in the stool. That's great. So it could be that more dairy is more important than limiting oxalate intake. So what I say to my patients about the oxalate list, like chocolate and berries and the stuff that you talked about, is I have never told anyone to never eat chocolate. Again. <laughs> okay. When you do eat it, accompany it with some dairy, have some yogurt or a little orange juice with calcium or some a glass of milk, drink more water so that you pee out that oxalate in a more dilute urine, right? Nobody's going to ever not eat nuts, right? You guys know that nuts have a cardiovascular benefit too, right? So 
eat fewer nuts if you're eating a giant can. Yeah, there are people with extremes of their nut intake and their berry intake and, and the like. Just eat less of it. When you do eat it, drink lots of water and accompany it with some dairy to bind up oxalate. So I hope you feel better about that. Beth. I feel so much better. Can yeah. can I yeah. ask about the calcium thing? I, I noticed, I, I believe calcium supplements are not recommended, but calcium in the diet is recommended. How, how does the physiology differ there? Yeah, um, that's an important question. And it is true in the women's health study where women took, uh, you know, that's a, that's a study of, you know, to prevent uh, postmenopausal osteoporosis, women who took more calcium had more kidney stones. Uh, but the number only went from 1% in that study in the control group to 2%. So, you know, the absolute risk was only 1% different, but the relative risk, of course, was a 50% uh, or, excuse me, 100% doubling of the risk of stones. So it depends how you look at it. So what I basically say to women in particular, and, you know, there are uh, links between decreased bone density and kidney stones, calcium kidney stones. So what I always say is you're much better off taking your calcium as dairy if possible. Um, if you have to take a calcium pill, take calcium citrate. Citrate helps prevent kidney stones, so take calcium citrate. And take it with meals. That way the calcium will serve not only as a calcium supplement, but also as an oxalate binder. And is there right? a benefit so for them taking it at lunch and dinner versus breakfast? Because breakfast is going to have a lower load or something of oxalate? Yeah, I mean, right. That, that's right. So what I tell people is if you're going to take a calcium pill or you're going to have dairy, take it with when your oxalate is, right? So if you're eating spinach for dinner, that's where you should have some dairy and calcium. If you're having a spinach for lunch, then have some yogurt at that time, right? If you're having a nut bran or something uh, for breakfast, um, you know, that's a good time for to have. Make sure you're eating with milk or yogurt, that kind of thing. So if the timing of that is... I'm eating oxalate. I want to have some calcium to go with it. And, you know, you, you guys know that the for osteoporosis, the data for calcium and vitamin D is actually pretty bad. Yeah. You know, it's not, not, not really useful, right? So I really stress, you know, weight-bearing exercise for bones and getting calcium through dairy products. And then, you know, there's been data in recent years. I don't know how you all feel about bisphosphonates, but there's data showing that bisphosphonates lower urine calcium because you're generating less calcium from bone or even laying down bone. So calcium, urinary calcium goes down. And there are data showing that people who take bisphosphonates, women who take bisphosphonates have fewer kidney stones. So that all makes sense. So I'm, I'm sort of a fan of bisphosphonates and uh, try to encourage people that that's a good treatment when bone density is bad. And some of the people with bad bone density have kidney stones. So I do wind up having a, a population of women with decreased bone density who are concerned about these issues. That's a nice that, that's a nice bargaining chip, Paul, uh, to help with uh, getting people on bisphosphonates because it's yeah. always it's always a bit of a struggle. Yeah, Dave. So I really like the way that you told us about like you know water is our first prescription. Then we're going to give this empiric dietary advice. The four things that you told us about. And as primary care, that's probably going to be helping most of our patients. But if we decide that the person, maybe they've had more than one recurrence, or they really want to go the route of the 24-hour urine and try to get some more targeted therapy, I'm not sure that I yet would feel comfortable trying to target things. So what? how do you decide when you do get a 24-hour collection and you're getting all that information back, Like, what are some of the things you think about starting either supplements or medications, and how do you go about that? Yeah, Matt, you know, I could, I could go on uh, about this topic for an hour, but, you know, it's a really important question. I also really want to point out that I appreciate the question about primary care uh, physicians and internists, right? Because I love doing medicine grand rounds and talking to general practitioners and saying, you guys do all kinds of hard things like take care of diabetes and coronary artery disease and atrial fibrillation and, and the like. Why don't you do anything about kidney stones, right? Um, it is so. I'm. I really do want to be uh, the, the a proselytizer about kidney stones being viewed as a serious issue, right? It's related to people with kidney stones have more hypertension and obesity and coronary disease. Kidney stones are often sort of the beginning of the metabolic syndrome, right? The first sign where you can say to a patient, you know, your A1C of 6.1%, it's really important. And it's part of that kidney stone issue. And it's going to lead to more serious issues too. And now's the time for you to think about weight loss and appropriate diet, you know? So part of what I said before, the empiric diet is something that you can talk to patients about and, and really feel that you're going to do something useful. 
And it's not just about kidney stone prevention. It's about prevention of hypertension. And it's the prevention and exercise is good for you. Just replace the water that you lose. You know, all of these things are presumably contributing to, to make kidney stones part of this discussion. Um, so that's important. In terms of giving medications, you guys have all written prescriptions for thiazides. Thiazides prevent kidney stones. They lower blood pressure. They improve bone density. When I give my patient thiazide, I say, I am extending your life expectancy by lowering your blood pressure. I am improving your bone density because you'll have less calcium in the urine. I'm preventing kidney stones. Okay, it doesn't prevent cancer. <laughs> You're pretty good. And it's a pretty good medication and it's pretty cheap, right? So certainly in patients with hypertension, it's easy. But if you didn't know what else to do for your kidney stone patient, you said, I'm going to give you a little bit of endapamide or a little dose of chlorthalidone. Those are the longer acting drugs as compared to hydrochlorothiazide. You're going to be doing something useful. And I think you can give thiazides empirically. Think about this. You guys give thiazides to patients with hypertension without knowing why they have high blood pressure, right? And there are people who have promoted renin profiling, but that's pretty much out of vogue today. You give thiazides to people because they have high blood pressure. You could give thiazides to people because they have kidney stones. I think that's appropriate, right? And you could also measure bone density in patients with calcium stones and particularly older people and particularly women, and then use thiazides as a way of improving bone density and preventing kidney stones. So I think that's reasonable. Citrate helps prevent stones. And citrate has been used for prevention of stones, even in people who had normal urinary citrate. So another point that I like to make is when you don't know what else to do, give more citrate. Citrate comes in different forms. There's sodium citrate. That's not preferred because sodium will increase urine calcium. Potassium citrate is the usual way. There are other citrate preparations on the market, over-the-counter, relatively inexpensive. Um, those are potentially useful as well. So citrate is a way of doing it. You can, you can add citrate to the diet by having more citrus fruits. Um, yes, there's some oxalate, Beth, in uh, citrus fruits, but there's also citrate there as well. And they increase citrate, uh, excuse me, citrus fruits will increase your urine volume too, right? Because they're mostly water. So those are all reasonable. If you think about medications, I think both thiazides and citrate supplements are reasonable empiric choices. In other words, not based on a 24-hour urine collection and easily within the realm of a general internist. Yeah, because it, it, it just, when you start to read the articles about it, it, it can get really confusing. So I, I do like the more general advice. And if I'm being honest, until, you know, until I feel more comfortable with the topic, I'll probably, if people are wanting to get more geeky on the, the topic than that, or more personalized, then I'm going to send, try to send them to somebody like yourself that has a lot more experience with kidney stones. But I think, like like you mentioned, in primary care, a lot of this is going to fall on us. Um, not everybody can see a specialist, you know, a, a doctor that specializes in kidney stones for sure. There's, there's not enough of you to go around, I'm sure. It's true. Paul, what else should we talk about here? Is there, is there more to the case? Uh, have, we, have we cured Mr. Stone? I, th I think we, we cruelly gave Mr. Stone another stone. So we had him come back a year later and say, Doc, I know I have another kidney stone. So I, I guess um, in these final minutes, I, I, I a general question I had is how good are patients after they've had the initial kidney stone, how good are patients at knowing whether or not they've actually had recurrence or not? Yeah. If the, if the patient says I'm having the kind of symptoms, the kind of discomfort that I associate with my last episode, generally they're highly sensitive and very, very specific. Um, so I, I think that they will often be correct. You know, there's some, I've got at least two patients who are waiting for their ultrasounds to come back tomorrow. Uh, to tell me if they have stones or not, and they suspected that they did. So, you know, I'm certainly willing. I have a low threshold for getting an, uh, an ultrasound in those sorts of cases. In the patients with recurrent stones, I generally will get an ultrasound as a good screening test once a year as a way of seeing how things are going. And for me, that's just like taking a blood pressure, you know, just seeing how, how are you doing in response to therapy. And at that point where things are becoming more recurrent, the patient has more stones, that's the point where I think 24-hour urine collections give us a better sense of what drugs to perhaps use or what parts of the diet to highlight for the patient. And, you know, patients particularly will be motivated at that point. And I think patients have, you know, there's, there's some discussion about patients not doing what the doctors tell them. And honestly, I really think that that's a, that urologists don't spend enough time talking to people about that very frequently, right? And nephrologists are more likely to take that time. And I think primary care doctors do that. You guys do that for a living. 
um, talk to patients about their blood pressure and their and their diet and uh, exercise and the like, and all of that stuff is the kind of counseling that we expect uh, as part of our jobs and as part of kidney stone prevention too. With that, I think we probably should go to take home points. So if if the audience is only going to remember you know two or three things from this talk, what would you like them to remember about kidney stones? Yeah. So one thing, Matt, Paul, Beth, is is that kidney stones are associated with a variety of other issues that should be taken into account. You know, it's kidney stones don't happen by themselves very frequently. They're they're part of a syndrome of overweight, diabetes, uh, and the like. Of course, fluid intake has to be talked about. You could spend 15 minutes, I could spend an hour talking about fluid intake and recognizing that it's not as simple as, uh, as everyone thinks. You really want to do it around the clock if possible, but recognizing that urinating is sometimes inconvenient and a burden for people. Diet, uh, there are some very simple uh, parts of the diet uh, that I think address other issues that internists are interested in, particularly salt intake and, uh, and overweight. So those are my, uh, my most important points. And, and kidney stones are preventable, right? There's a lot of satisfaction in preventing stones. And, you know, that's, that's certainly easier in some ways than taking care of other things that we all do, take care of diabetics and high blood pressure and the like. Well, I, I feel empowered to uh, do better at this. And uh, hopefully the audience will as well. Paul, any final words before we get on to the outro? Nope, I, I agree. This was extraordinarily helpful. Thank you so much for your time. I feel so glad I can tell patients they can eat that slice of strawberry <laughs> rhubarb pie with a glass of milk. <laughs> that's right. That That is, yeah, that's... There you go. Well, Beth, wait a second. Not rhubarb. No, <laughs> no rhubarb. <laughs> this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Strong work. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. This would also be an excellent chance to sign up for the Curbsiders Digest, our twice-monthly newsletter that rounds up recent practice-changing news. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Paul Williams and Kate Grant for the cover art. And to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. As a reminder, this and most of our episodes are available for CME for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Thanks to VCU Health for providing that. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you are doubtless hearing behind us. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.